Hey, what's up, everybody? want to thank all of those who've been listening to the podcast. The response has been pretty positive, so uh, we definitely appreciate it. Uh, feel free to subscribe to automatically download new episodes. Today, we got an interview with University of Hawaii head football coach Todd Graham, how this quarantine has impacted his program, what he thinks football might look like here in the near future, plus some headlines and our best and worst. Hope you enjoy. What's up, Jordan? How's it going? Can you believe it? Let's talk sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helley. This is episode five. Quite the milestone we're reaching here. I know. It feels kind of regular now. I'm desperately in need of a haircut, but I am feeling a lot better about the podcast, so that has been nice. Uh, let's get into it, then. We'll start off a little bit differently here this episode because this is episode five, so we want to change it up. It's such a special anniversary, right? Uh, we're going to change up the format just a tad, and we're going to start off with the warm-up, something a little light, kind of an amuse-bouche little uh, appetizer before we get into the main dishes of the program. Uh, ESPN had this pick on social media. It was pretty interesting, I thought. They basically compared Adam Sandler to Will Ferrell with regard to sports movies, right? And they've been involved with some classics. For Adam Sandler, the four that they posted were Happy Gilmore, Waterboy, The Longest Yard, and Uncut Gems. And for Will Ferrell, Semi-Pro, Talladega Nights, Kicking and Screaming, and Blades of Glory. So in the ESPN Pick'em, to start things off here, Jordan, who you got? You got the Sandman or you got Will Ferrell? This is a great question. Great question, Post. Uh, the creative minds have been hard at work during these times. I am partial to Adam Sandler, and I will preface that with saying I still haven't seen Uncut Gems. Uh, I know I've had a lot of time on my hands, uh, but apparently I just haven't gotten around to it. I've heard really good things. Uh, I am such a big Happy Gilmore and Waterboy fan. Uh, you don't even need The Longest Yard, uh, and I'm just going based on hearsay when it comes to Uncut Gems that it was pretty solid. This is nothing against semi-pro in Talladega Nights, great movies, Blades of Glory, uh, but I am very partial to The Waterboy and Happy Gilmore. I think it is peak Adam Sandler. It is everything that is great about his comedic genius. Uh, so I'm, I'm going with uh, Happy Madison Productions. Yeah, if we were comparing like their entire catalog of movies for each individual, then I think I might lean towards Will Ferrell because then you'd be throwing in like Anchorman and some of these other fantastic movies. Uh, but if we're just talking about this sports selection mm -hmm. of their respective catalogs, then yeah, I think I lean Adam Sandler. And I can't believe you didn't see Uncut Gems. Adam Sandler got Oscar buzz for his performance in that movie. I can't believe you didn't see it. I didn't see it either. But I'm trusting that it was a good movie. And so we'll just take everyone's word for it. Uh, but I think we're both, regardless of that, going with the Sandman. Happy Gilmore, man. I mean, I'm still quoting that to this day, much to the chagrin of my wife. Uh, who is just really tired of me making all of those references. All right, let's get into the nitty-gritty game time here, uh, and we will open things up with some of the more serious or consequential headlines. Five major football conference commissioners, Jordan, have asked the NCAA to relax requirements to compete in Division I for four years, including the minimum number of sports a school must sponsor. This raises a lot of eyebrows and red flags, potentially. A letter from the commissioners of the American Athletic Conference the Mountain West Conference, for which Hawaii is a football-only member, 
the Mid-American Conference, Sunbelt Conference, and Conference USA, all to the NCAA president, Mark Emmert, asking for temporary relief from financial aid requirements along with average football attendance. The request was made on behalf of all 350 Division I schools, which is another important element in this. The commissioners also asked that a moratorium be placed on schools moving into Division I for the length of the waiver. This news of the letter came on the same day that Cincinnati of the American Athletic Conference announced it was effectively dropping men's soccer. Earlier this month, Old Dominion of Conference USA dropped wrestling, uh, and you have Mountain West Commissioner Craig Thompson who says, hey, this is not being done with the intention of eliminating sports, although that is something that is certainly carved out by this letter request, but he's saying that the intent is to find flexible and creative solutions. What do you anticipate the ramifications of this request as being here throughout the landscape of college sports? Yeah, I mean, it could be seismic, right? The the way that we're potentially looking at trying to respond to the economic downturn when it comes to the big business that is college athletics. You mentioned Craig Thompson talking about, hey, we're, we're not looking at necessarily cutting sports, but if you're asking to reduce the minimum amount of sponsored sports, um, the only way you reduce is by cutting these sports. So that could be worst case scenario is you're looking at the cancellation of some programs. And we've already seen some programs get the ball rolling, as you mentioned, with Cincinnati men's soccer, wrestling at Old Dominion. And so now that I think those schools have gone on and taken the leap of faith, if you will, they've almost made it a little easier for some other institutions to say, other schools are doing it. We've got to also look at cutting programs uh, to save money. The other lesser ramifications, if you will, I mean, we could see less games. Uh, There are a minimum number of games that each sport is required to play. Uh, Nobody even gets close to that anymore, especially at the Division I level. I mean, baseball, I think it's like 27, and most teams are playing north of 50 games uh, in Division I baseball. But you could see a reduction in schedule, just less games uh, to be going around. I think we could see a revamping of scheduling. Um, You know, we've kind of gotten in a little bit of a predicament because of the rapid expansion of conferences and everybody trying to keep up with the Joneses, a lot of these conferences are stretched pretty far geographically. And so I think the other thing we could see, and you've seen some things being written up in Yahoo and other places where you could be looking at regional scheduling, where it makes a lot more sense for schools closer in proximity, not necessarily in the same league, but to start scheduling each other regularly. You could see things like in men's volleyball, where you take a trip and you go ahead and play series like they do in baseball. Uh, you know, and so less opponents, maybe try and keep the same number of games or something close to the same number of games where you're flying someplace and all of a sudden, hey, instead of playing just one game at X University, we're looking at playing two or three games over the course of a weekend to get those games in and reduce costs. So I think we could see a bunch of that where it becomes a little more regional. Maybe we see some realigning and some reshuffling of conferences. That could be a, a bigger picture item to look into as well. Uh, for some of these leagues that are pretty far-flung geographically. Uh, Then I think the other thing, which is probably a pretty simple fix uh, that we could see, is just a reduction in terms of postseason tournaments, which I know are moneymakers for a lot of conferences, but for some of the smaller conferences, some of those that don't play um, at singular sites, what sense does it make to get all the baseball teams together at some facility and play a postseason conference tournament? That's just added cost. So I think that's something that goes by the wayside as well. 
Yeah, I mean, you could see something like this coming just because you're talking about the fact that the men's basketball tournament, which is such a cash cow for the NCAA and all of its member institutions, it didn't happen. It got canceled because of the pandemic. And so that costs schools across the board a total of about $375 million in NCAA distributions or revenue sharing. And so not having that piece of the pie combined with the sports that have been shut down here for the rest of this athletic season. And now you're talking about Dr. Anthony Fauci saying, if we do bring sports back in some form this summer, it is likely going to have to be without fans collecting at these sports facilities and arenas and stadiums. And so that's another part of the NCAA's division one requirement is they have attendance requirements, right? An average of at least 15,000 people in actual paid attendance for all football home games to maintain Division I or FBS uh, membership. And so that's something that's judged on a rolling basis every two years. But I think the fear is obviously the opening of the door based on the wording of this letter. It's going to open the door for them to drop programs. And most of the programs that are going to be on the chopping block are going to be men's programs because the one thing the NCAA by law cannot lift in terms of its requirement is Title IX and the compliance with that. Uh, and so I think that that is going to be scary and sketchy for a lot of those, if you want to use the term sort of marginal men's sports programs. It's just the reality of the times. I don't like it. I would hope that some of the institutions that are involved in this request are going to, as Mountain West Commissioner Craig Thompson alluded to, think a little bit more outside the box, try to come up with more creative solutions as ways to prevent having to take that all-out step of eliminating programs. Now, this news coincides as well with WatchStadium.com uh, putting out a poll that they said showed 88% of athletic directors were in favor of the expansion of the college football playoff as a means to stimulate greater revenue. Hey, why not, right? College football is the big behemoth. Why not do it? And now this is something that wouldn't realistically happen for at least a couple of more years. But you're talking about this shortfall in revenue being an impact that is felt for years to come. Uh, and so are you in favor generally of an expansion of the college football playoff beyond four teams? And if so, what would it look like if it were up to you? Are you talking eight teams? Are you talking 16 teams? What's best case scenario? Um, what we've seen in the history of the four-team edition uh, of a playoff, right, once we got out of the BCS era, the semifinals really haven't been that good. We've had far more ho-hum, boring semifinals than we've had compelling semifinals. Maybe the Oklahoma-Georgia Rose Bowl a couple of years ago, but it's been a lot of blowouts. It hasn't been great. Expansion, I really don't think is necessary. Uh, but if we are going there to kind of go with the mindset of Mark Rolfing, who was our guest on the previous podcast, it's a time to ask for what you want. And if I'm looking at it from a group of five perspective, then it has to be beneficial for everybody and it has to be fair for everybody. And so I think the group of five needs a seat at the table. And I'm not saying a 10-team playoff or something like that where everybody gets an automatic berth. That I think is a even more of a pipe dream than what I'm talking about. But I think even a 16 playoff makes a lot of sense where you get all five power five champions in there. Nobody gets left out. The Pac-12 can get a seat at the table once again. So maybe I can get Larry Scott on board with this idea. And then the highest rank of five team uh, gets the sixth seed at, at the table. And I think it makes a lot of sense because it preserves buys for the first two teams, uh, which incentivize the regular season and kind of brings back even more magic to the regular season, I think, and, and puts a lot of emphasis on getting one of those top two buys. Or you go to an 18 playoff, same deal, 
five automatic births for the group of five, or for the Power Five champions, a group of five auto birth, and two at larges, and we, we play an eight team there. Once we get beyond that, I think we're really watering things down. I know it's been successful at the FCS level, but I mean, you look at the four team playoff, and competition hasn't been great outside of you know a couple of semis here or there. Yeah, Mark Rolfing, as you mentioned, said out of chaos can come the opportunity for change, for positive change. And you know me, I've always been a proponent of, hey, let's expand this thing. Let's include everybody. If you are an FBS member program, then you should have a realistic chance of, if you are good enough, competing for a national championship. Like that makes no sense to me that you would have this group within a group, the power five conferences that can compete basically among themselves, share the greater piece of the revenue pie with each other. And then all the other FBS institutions are just like, all right, well, we'll take whatever table scraps you allow to fall off the edges. And that's what we'll feed on. And we'll all sort of pretend like we're still on equal standing college football at the top level, the FBS level, is really the only sport in all of intercollegiate athletics where at the beginning of the season, not everybody is on the same starting line. All right, and I understand there's a class system in collegiate sports. There's no doubt about it. But at least in theory, in every other sport at the beginning of the season, everybody's on the same starting line. If you are good enough in men's or women's collegiate basketball, even if you are part of a smaller conference, if you win that conference, you get into the tournament with an automatic bid, you have a chance to win the national championship. And that cannot be said in FBS football. It's going to take people who are a lot smarter than me to come up with something that works for everybody. But that said, I would like to see the development of something that does suit and benefit everybody. That's just the, the way I see sports. I want to see if you are part of that establishment, if you are part of that level, then everyone should have, at least in theory, a chance to play for a national championship. Or we could do the thing that June Jones suggested we do in uh, all the group of five conferences break off and play in the spring. Heck, that might be when college football <laughs> takes place this upcoming year anyway. Who knows? All right. Well, Jordan, we got Todd Graham, about to join us, University of Hawaii head football coach. A good guest to have here on uh, what is a milestone fifth episode of the show. Absolutely. You can sense his passion, uh, basically the entire interview. Uh, and he was really gracious with his time and, and spent a considerable amount of the morning recording that interview with him, uh, which was a lot of fun. But he is a guy that is fired up uh, and can't wait to get back on the field once everything clears up. Yeah, he's a little antsy. There's no doubt about it. You can tell in this interview. Let's go ahead and run it, uh, and then we'll be back for the post game right after. What has this experience been like as a head coach of a Division One football program, but because of the circumstances, you're not able to get out onto the field. You're not able to have the same kind of interaction uh, that you would normally do at this time of year. Yeah, it's been it's been uh, the most unique uh, circumstance in over 30 years of coaching, I think, that I've uh, encountered. And you know, especially being new, you know, we were just building some trust and we'd actually been around our players for six weeks. And then uh, now we've been away from we actually broke for spring break, was going to come back and start spring ball. And that's when all everything got shut down. And uh, uh, so we've been now almost five weeks away from them. So I've almost, almost been away from them longer than I, I was with them. So, it, but it's, a, it's an educational opportunity, a teaching opportunity. And, and so what we've done is uh, obviously they got new online classes, online academic support and online teaching football. We're trying to, you, know, you, you, you take it as a challenge, as an opportunity. Uh, I think you got to be innovative, but the key is continue building that relationship and then educate, 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 do all the things we can do. But I'm ready to go back to work. 
What does sort of the, the virtual teaching of football and, and some of the, the virtual reps that you can take with the players, like what does that entail exactly? We're spending a lot of time just really, it's like classroom, you know, one-on-one teaching football right now. And then as we progress here, it's more and more advanced, just trying to get ahead on everything we can do. But I'm, I'm going to be honest with you now, there's no substitute for practicing. There's no substitute for being able to be there and be face-to-face and, and building that, uh, you know, you know there, there's that passion and that activation that happens uh, when, you're, when you're around them every day. And, and I'll be honest with you, I, I took 24 months off, and, uh, uh, man, I was looking forward to getting out there on that grass. And so I'm chomping at the bit to get out there and get after it. But, we, you know, we're being innovative too. You know, that's one of the things with, a, with our staff. It's so imp- – I think the team – this is going to be the most unique season, I think, in the last – 30 years in college football because of the inact you're inactive. I don't care what, what type of push-ups and sit-ups you're doing. You're not training like you're normally used to training. And with that means when you come back, you can overtrain and then you're going to have injury, all kinds of issues moving forward. So the team that can adapt and that can teach and prepare the best, uh, it's a great opportunity for that team to be really successful this season. Yeah, Coach, it, it, kind of touching on one of your points that you made there, you know, being away from the game for two years, and I know coaches, right, they, there's nothing like being around your guys and, and this new set of guys that you've gotten and you talk about as an opportunity to teach, but just how much has it affected, uh, you know, getting to know all these guys on an individual level and what kind of opportunity uh, does this layoff present to, to maybe get to know them differently? Well, it was an interesting process because, you know, at, when, it, when that all happened, I'd never been fired from anything in my life. And, you know, I was the, we were winning and being successful, you know, at Arizona State. And so it was kind of a unique situation where AD came in and wanted to bring his own guy. And that's, that's part of the business. So you, you, you understand that. But, you know, my wife said, hey, let's take off a year. And I almost went straight back to work. I almost just took another job. And I'm glad that I didn't. I took a year. I went and spent some time with the Patriots. Coach Belichick's a friend of mine. So I got to sit in a room with, you know, Tom Brady and Coach McDaniels and, and, and watch training camp. And I'd never been able to do anything like that because I'd always been working. And so getting to travel around, uh, you know, with my friends at Auburn, Coach Malzahn at Auburn, Coach Norvell's at Florida State, all the guys that I've worked with. Man, I learned a ton. I also – was rejuvenated in in the standpoint, and I'm I'm a high, I don't I'm not ever I don't I don't ever get burnt out. I'm, I'm a grinder worker. I've never worked a day in my life. I love this stuff. So so it's not like I was you know you know I, I needed to be remotivated, but it it just really I learned a ton uh, and just gave me a different perspective. And I was very selective uh, in that second season, and then man, there wasn't that many opportunities and I didn't get the right opportunity. And then you have this, the most unique feeling I've ever had in my career coaching is, oh my gosh, am I going to get an opportunity? Because I could gone back and, you know, been an NFL assistant or something like that, but that's just not who I am. I'm a developer uh, of young men and, and, and I want to lead my own program. And so, so getting this opportunity has been something that's been awesome. But the two years that I spent, I learned more. I think I'm a, I was a, you know, I'm a better coach for it. I'm a better dad, a better husband. Uh, I know I've grown spiritually just in every way because it teaches you not to take things for granted. And I think that's the thing. You know, I'm sitting here, you know, assuming we're going to have football season because that's just the way I think. I just can't imagine, you know, that that not, not happening. You know, 
somehow, some way, I just believe that uh, uh, that this is going. We're going to get through this thing, and and we're going to have football season because uh, you know that, that would just be crazy to me. You know, not not to have it, and and I surely I can't even think about that because I don't want that to happen. Because I I want to be back out there on that field and impacting young people and coaching football and getting after. Yeah, and on the note of you mentioning how you've learned some things over those couple of years away from the game and getting a chance to interact and learn from some of the brightest minds, you know, not asking you to give away any trade secrets or anything like that, but has it changed the way you look at the game schematically, some of the things you approach from a day-to-day basis, as well as your approach from a philosophy standpoint that you've kind of touched on already? Yeah, you know, this is my fifth Division One head coaching job, and, and, and you know, Guys like Coach Belichick, that, that I, it was great being able to spend time and just seeing the uniqueness of their program. You know, I've been to probably over half the programs in the NFL and and visited it, and and none every I've never been to one that's like his. It is so unique to who they are in New England and what they're about, and it's all driven by their philosophy of personnel and their, their philosophy of development and how they develop players and how they go about doing everything that they do. And so I think that's the biggest thing is, is just being adaptive. You know, you have to fit a place. And, and I'll be real honest with you, when I was looking for jobs, you know, I've always been a guy they hire when you're one in 12 or two in 10 and, and, and go in and take a program at the bottom and turn it around. And I really didn't want to do that again. Uh, you know, I mean, I just, you know, I, and not that that's, you know, that, that didn't mean I didn't want that challenge. I wanted to go to a place where that I thought was at the, at the, you know, was a program at the point like Hawaii that I fit. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a person, faith, family, and football. And, and usually my wife would tell you it's football, uh, you know, family and faith, you know, I mean, somewhere in there. I mean, but I try to make it the right way. But, but I'm a person, you know, Hawaii is a, is a very spiritual place. It's a, it's a place where people have strong beliefs. And I think faith is big. Family is big. And then there's this toughness. When I used to come and compete here, we would come out battered and bruised like, man, the physicality. So everybody wants to talk about, you know, the, the run and shoot and offense. And obviously we're going to build upon that. But what I want to bring to Hawaii is I had an opportunity to go to training camp with a guy named Nico Nova. Uh, and, and I, and I also had a, had a relationship with a guy named Dick Tony. I want to bring defense. I want to bring a physicality and a discipline to Hawaii. We designed what we're doing to fit the place that we're at. And you, you have to be a fit. And so that, I, I really was excited because I think I, I am a good fit. I hope our fans will see, uh, you know, I hope they, they, after this season they, they sit there and go, man, they play offense with a defensive mentality. Uh, what I wanted to ask you is, and now everyone's in the same boat here uh, with regard to spring ball and, and being at a, a standstill at the moment. Uh, but that said, for some of the returning players and even like a quarterback like Chevin Cordero or players at other positions that maybe were on the verge of taking that next step into a greater role with the team, how much does missing this time now and potentially missing all of spring and maybe even into some summer team-like workouts, but how do you specifically look at how it impacts individuals? Yeah, I think it's a challenge, uh, you know, especially there's six new head coaches in the Mountain West Conference. And those six new head coaches, I think I don't think any of them got spring ball. And so that is a challenge when you're coming in and 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 you can say what you want to say. I, you know, I can walk, I can come on here today and say, hey guys, trust me. Well, you know, that doesn't work. It, it takes time. And what we're fighting in college football is time. We only have 20 hours a week in season. 
we only have eight hours out of season. And now, you know, we only have four hours uh, to be on Zoom with them a week. And so uh, that time is what's very – and I do think it, it, the people that have their program already established, like Air Force and Boise, they, they're, they're at an advantage because they've been doing what they've been doing and they have the relationship uh, developed. So I think young people that, and I, and I get, I, I don't work with older people. I work with young people. So, so young people know if you care about them, they know if you know what you're talking about and they know if you have a specific plan for them. And so what, to me, the key is, is to take everything that Shevin as a quarterback was doing well, and continue to do those things. I got to get these kids to buy into taking what we were doing offensively really well and developing a defensive mentality to it. You got to be able to run the ball, yards after contact, yards after catch. And that's kind of the mentality. So they've been inactive for five weeks. You got to train to play football. And, and so are we going to get them back mid-June or are we going to get back not till July or not till, I, you know, I don't know where that is, but we're, we're, we're basically planning like if we report on July 30th, we've got 29 days to get our team prepared because if you don't, you're going to see a whole bunch of penalties. You're going to see a whole bunch of turnovers. You're going to see a whole bunch of bad football. And I think the key is, is what you're saying. It is very specific. We're saying who are the guys that we need to get the ball to? And how do they, how, you know, what does Shevin do well? And let's adapt what we're doing to him. And, and I'll be honest with you, if we'd have had spring ball, we would have done that. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those, you keep hearing this phrase, right, where it's prepare for the worst, hope for the best. Uh, you're saying you are hopeful there will be a football season. What do you anticipate that possibly looking like? Could we be looking at games without fans? Could we be looking at a delayed start where football starts a little bit later in the calendar year? What are you preparing yourself in this program for? I think all those options are, are options that, that are more likely in my mind than not having football season. I, mean, I can see all those things, uh, especially early in the season, there might be games where you don't have fans, but because you obviously you got TV and those type of situations. But on the same hand, what, what, what we're planning for is, is to because it's going to be so different because of the limited practice and preparation time. And that's compounded by teams that have a brand new coach. And, and so I'm hoping, I'm hoping we come out of this thing. I know we will. I, I think we're going to have football season. I just think I just believe that's going to happen. And uh, uh, we've got to be able to do it safe and keep everybody healthy and all that. But uh, you, you can tell I'm pretty motivated. Yeah, hey, Coach, you, you mentioned you got a you know an abbreviated class, especially on the the short turnaround. Once you got the job, uh, uh, what do you anticipate your your footprint being like when it comes to recruiting? I know you brought in a couple of guys from from your neck of the woods, if you will, from the Texas area, uh, in that hotbed of talent as well. Uh, but what do you imagine the the footprint looking like once you're able to kind of get back into the normal throes of recruiting uh, as you scour the country for talent? Yeah, it's very simple. You know, uh, it says University of Hawaii on our helmet. And so, uh, uh, you know, I've researched all that. We've gone and gone through all the data. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a process guy. You know, I want to look at those things. We've basically been signing 3.6 players a year from Hawaii. Uh, 9.7 have been going elsewhere. We've got we to gotta balance that up. We, we've got to do better when it comes to that. And now that's not easy to do. Uh, there's some things that are changing uh, that, that could help us. You know, there, there might be a possibility they're open up, you know, uh, where there's a one-time transfer. Uh, but we got to make – we're going to be – what's going to make and break our program is Hawaii. 
That's people that have connections with here. Like there's kids right now in the mainland that we've offered that we're in on that we've got a shot at that are in, you know, different States uh, that are from Hawaii. So, so you got to identify people that have a connection with Hawaii or American Samoa. That that's been, that's, that's going to be number one. Number two is transfer students. It, it, it takes a little bit more of a mature kid and, and uh, you know, it, you know, junior college transfer or now a transfer, if they allow them to play, they don't have to set out will be a huge deal. And, and those transfer people having some type of connection with Hawaii or some type of connection with me, the, the kids that we signed, uh, you know, uh, Quinn out of, out of Cedar Hill, uh, you know, the, the, the wide receiver who I think is going to be a dynamic difference maker for us. I coached his coach. So his high, his high school head coach played for me in college in 1993. So, so you're going to have those connections where you're going to do that, but you can't make a living. I can't, I don't have that many kids over there. I mean, I've got a bunch of them, but not that many. That's really number two. Then number three is, is high schools on the mainland. I mean, that's, that's, that's really your bottom priority and, and so a lot of times coaches only know what they know. You have to be adaptive. We're a team that competed for the championship last year, won 10 games, eight the year before. You can't have a defeatist mindset. It, you know, we gotta, players have got to be able to choose us knowing that we can help them. All their dreams that they have of playing in the NFL, getting a great education, they can do all right here at the University of Hawaii and represent their state. And what I tell them, I say, you can commit to those other schools and there's not going to be much, much fanfare and people excited. You can be one of 25 committing. You commit here, man, and you're, you're a warrior staying home and coming home and competing for your home state. And we've got to make that a big deal. That, and, and can we help them? Can they come here and, and, and be a first-round draft pick? And I believe they can. And to do that, you have to win. Yeah, well, one of those guys is – is Sergio Musal, the offensive lineman out of Mililani, who was in this recent yeah. February signing class? I, I know you're pretty. I know you're pretty excited about him. Watching some of the the write or reading some of the write ups and some of the stuff posted on the Hawaii Athletics website as well. But how important was it not just to get a guy of his caliber, but but somebody as you mentioned from Hawaii and showing that these guys can stay home? Well, here, here's the thing. Okay, so it's understanding recruiting. How does recruiting work? Think about coaches is everybody does the same thing. They all go to the same clinics. They all recruit the same way. And what they do is they're going to come over here and they're going to identify kids in their junior, sophomore and junior year and offer them scholarships. Well, if you guys remember playing, a lot of guys mature between their junior year and their senior year. There's, they're not coming. Recruiters from the mainland are not coming back over here in the fall to watch high school games. They're not going to evaluate them. So a guy like Sergio – who develops late, that's where we've got to make a living here. And, and I didn't care about anybody else's evaluation with him. I don't walk into a school and say, hey, who's offered him? Hey, I'm, I'm confident enough in my ability to know who are we. And we should know what our strengths and weaknesses are. You watch this kid. I believe that kid, and you can mark this down. I, I mean, I don't make predictions. That kid will be really – Sergio will be extremely successful here. You're talking about physicality, power. I mean, how he dominated. I mean, the, the, the all poly bow. I mean, I mean, this guy really fit. I think he's going to be a – I think he's got potential to be an All-American center. He's got a cause in his heart. He's got something to prove. He's got a chip on his shoulder, and I like that. So that's where we've got to make a living is off how are, are those teams that are coming over here and getting these guys – when are they coming and how are they doing it? And they're evaluating them all early. 
So we've got to do a great job of senior year evaluation in Hawaii. And so we have an overall plan on what we need to look like offensively. We think that plan has been proven. So we want to look, we want to have a similar look offensively to all the teams that have scored a ton of points in Hawaii. But Hawaii used to play defense. And in 07, they gave up 25 points a game because they played defense. Okay. And what kind of defense? What did that look like? What did they do? So we're going to have to balance innovation with fundamentally sound and what we can execute. Uh, you've mentioned faith a lot, um, and that has been part of your mantra here. How do you incorporate faith with the way you motivate your players, uh, knowing that there's a balance that you have to maintain because you're dealing with players of different backgrounds and different yeah. beliefs? Yeah, I just believe living your life in the service of others. You know, I, I, one, of, one of the guys I have great admiration for is Pat Tillman. I got to be great friends with his family. Uh, Kevin, his brother, is a great friend of mine. As a matter of fact, he'll probably be on the sideline at Arizona uh, when we play Arizona. And uh, uh, but, but, you know, Pat was not a person that believed in any faith. He had read the Bible. He had read the Book of Mormons. He, he had read the, you know, uh, the Koran. He had read all these things. Uh, but Pat did believe in something bigger than himself. He had an unbelievable passion. You know, he gave up everything to serve his country. In, in, in your life, man, I mean, you got to have something that you believe in bigger than yourself. Has it been all football in the downtime of this quarantine? Have you made time to watch Netflix or Tiger King or something like that? Like, well, what, else, what else has infiltrated this, this period here uh, for you? Uh, you know, I, uh, I, I, don't, I don't spend a lot of my, my wife. My wife says, man, all this free time that you have and all your, you're on that stupid phone and on the, on the Internet all the time. So we watch a love trying to, I was trying to think of, uh, 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 you know, the, uh, I watched uh, a good movie last night in, in, in the wild uh, with Harrison Ford. Uh, that was pretty good. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm an old school guy. I like stuff like that. And then there was uh, my son was getting me to watch uh, – called Ozark. So it's on Netflix. It's uh -huh. a, kind of a, it's pretty, pretty violent. So anyway, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't, uh, I don't do a lot of that. I, I, uh, I like to read. Um, you know, my wife just wrote a book uh, called Tenacious and uh, encourage everybody to go out and buy that book. It's a great book. I mean, I love and my, my wife after every game will watch every offense, defense and special teams play. And so, uh, you know, you, you know, I'm pretty fanatical about it. The family tradition, it sounds like. Hey, Coach, uh, we appreciate it. Uh, amid unprecedented times here, uh, we appreciate you making some time to talk with us. Uh, best of luck, and we definitely hope to see this team out on the field as a unit uh, here in the very near future. We're looking forward to it. Go Bows. All right, big thanks once again to Todd Graham for jumping on with us. As mentioned earlier, Jordan, uh, he spent a considerable time with us. Uh, we definitely appreciate that. Uh, and I think the message got through. Uh, he wants to play a physical brand of defense to go along with a high-scoring offense. He got that uh, point across. He made it a point to get that across a few times. Yeah, I might have missed that. Did he, did he mention something <laughs> about physicality on defense, bringing a defensive mentality to the offense? And uh, I think he anticipates scoring a fair amount of points. That's right. Yeah, that was uh, – if there was a theme of the interview, oh, that yeah. was one of them, along with the fact that uh, Ozark is a very violent show. All right, well, let's get into our post-game. Uh, Dana White. Uh, as defiant as ever, right? He just had to postpone UFC 249 based on what he says were uh, conversations with ESPN and Disney Brass. He said, we talked to people at the highest of levels in those organizations, and they were able to dissuade him from following through with the event. 
Now he's saying he's eyeing a May 9th event and promises that the UFC will be the first major sports organization to return to a normal operation schedule amid the pandemic. Is this just wishful thinking on Dana White? Is it a publicity stunt? Like, what's happening here? Uh, all of the above, I, I think, uh, as we like to say in Hawaii, enough already. It's just <laughs> the the arrogance behind it, the defiance behind it, where the UFC has to be first. Dana White has to be the, the smartest guy in the room, the one who figures out a way to put on professional sports in the midst of this pandemic quicker and faster and more efficiently than everybody else, including the mainstay leagues, including the NBA, Major League Baseball, uh, the PGA Tour, all, all of the above. Like the, the fact that they have to be the ones first. If, if the cards uh, uh, are there for them to get it in and the stars align, I get it, but I, I just don't see the rush. We, we saw the plug being pulled because basically his big corporate sponsor said, what are we doing here? And Disney and ESPN stepped in and they, they will be the ones to carry these cards if indeed he is able to get the clearance from the state of Nevada because it sounds like it's going to be at the Apex Center there in Las Vegas. The, the Nevada State Athletic Commission still hasn't lifted their ban on combat sports. The governor there in Nevada still really hasn't loosened some of the restrictions when it's come to quarantine. All those are assumptions for May 9th, which really isn't that far off. And so I just think it is another pie-in-the-sky approach that should it happen, hey, great, people are going to tune in, no doubt about it. But it doesn't have to happen unless everything is in order and everything is safe. I, I just don't get the defiance and the arrogance to keep trying and trying to put these things on before things are ready. Yeah, I mean, the guy is a cutthroat businessman. There's no denying that, right? And I think he is going to try to find a way to get the UFC to generate some form of revenue sooner rather than later. And I think the thing that is spurring him on is the fact that a comparable form of sports entertainment, and I use air quotes significantly here on that, but when you're talking about the dynamic of having uh, a couple of people or three individuals precisely in an enclosed ring or cage uh, getting physical with one another under the circumstances that we are enduring right now and it being deemed okay uh, is a precedent being set by the WWE, right? And another cutthroat businessman, Vince McMahon, who runs that show. And the WWE was declared an essential business in Florida by Governor Ron DeSantis and is being allowed to produce events. And this even after a WWE employee was recently reported to have tested positive for the coronavirus. Now, the WWE is saying that that is not an in-ring individual, that that is someone that is more on the periphery as far as the operation is concerned. But I can understand through the eyes of Dana White if he's looking at that and saying, hey, if the WWE is cleared to hold events, why can't the UFC or other combat sports where we can keep the number of individuals in and around the ring or cage at a minimum? Uh, I don't agree that the WWE should be portrayed as, as an essential business. I think that's the problem number one. Uh, but I can also understand Dana White looking at that and trying to convince uh, some of his business partners, hey, look, if they can go for it, why can't we go for it? They held a WrestleMania in front of an empty uh, arena. And why can't we do something similar to that? That's the can of worms, right? I think that gets opened up when you deem the world wrestling entertainment an essential business it's kind of hard to, to put that back in the box if, if you're Florida or some of these other entities that are entertaining the idea. Once you let one, other people are going to try and follow, even if we are a little premature in, in getting these events back on. 
All right, well, let's get into our best and worst. Uh, I like doing the bad news before the good news. So let's start once again with the worst. What's your worst here for this podcast? Yeah, nothing real bad uh, in this episode for me. Uh, some of the worst that I have seen, it kind of pairs with some good, I guess. The uh, uh, Taiwanese Professional Baseball League, uh, they're, they're getting back to playing some, some baseball, much like Korea is. Uh, but the Rakuten Monkeys decided that uh, just because the stands aren't going to be filled with actual living human beings, that doesn't mean they have to be empty. So they threw some robots and mannequins and and all kinds of things in the stands, piped in crowd noise to, to give the players as realistic a view as, or a feel as possible. And, and I get it. You know, they're trying, to, they're trying to keep things light and trying to keep the players motivated. But uh, if you're playing third base, I think you know whether or not that, that person sitting in row three is, is actually uh, a real person. Yeah, their technology on that front, in, in that region of the world, it's been ahead of the curve uh, for a number of different realms. And so, uh, yeah, maybe their, their robot fans are better than our robot fans. My worst is uh, Dak Prescott reportedly hosting a party. TMZ reported it to be like 30 people, including Ezekiel Elliott. Uh, Dak denied the claim, said that the number was under 10, that he did not violate any social distancing directives. Marcus Spears, as well as a host of other pundits, called it uh, dumb and disrespectful. Those were the words of Marcus Spears specifically. This all sort of rolled into the fact that Dak hasn't signed the franchise tender yet, and reports are he will not participate in proposed virtual work workouts with the team without a contract. Throw on top of that, Bill Barnwell, uh, NFL reporter, proposing that the Cowboys trade Dak and a 17th pick for Miami's fifth overall pick and a third rounder. Um, it just seems to be bad optics for Dak Prescott at a time where his being the face of the franchise is being called into question. And hey, look, it's just not smart to defy some of the directives out there to begin with under these circumstances, uh, but also at a time when maybe you're at your most uncertain regarding your future with that said franchise. Yeah, not a great look, right? E even if it was less than 10 people or whatever he's claiming it to be, you know, TMZ for as down in the dredges as they seem to operate, their, their track record when it comes to accuracy isn't terrible. So I don't know if I'm, I'm, tooting TMZ's horn a little bit here in their journalistic integrity, but yeah, it's just not a good look. It's, yeah. it's not a good look at all, not with everything going on and, and whether it was just a small get, whatever. Um, just stay home. Tell your friends, stay home. Uh, and for Dak, yeah, it's not not great look when you're trying to be the, uh, the face of the star. We're at a bad place in our existence when TMZ is something we can count on for its accuracy and reporting. <laughs> My gosh, where are we right now? All right, let's get to our best. What's yours? Uh, this was an easy one for me. I got, I got to make sure I get the, uh, the young lady's name right. This was a Darren Ravel tweet, which is always, you're always venturing into the twilight zone. Speaking a little bit of accurate Ravel reporting. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, but uh, Olive Veronesi, the 93 year old lady from Pennsylvania who apparently had put a sign on her window that said she needed more beer. And so people responded and people started bringing her beer and, and heck Coors sent her 150 Coors lights. Uh, and so I just thought that was great that uh, granny was still going, just, just crushing some beers in the downtime that, uh, that she needed more. You don't want to go to the store, right? We, we, we know the, the demographics and uh, Coors kudos to them for, for dropping off uh, a few cases of Coors light for her. I'm thinking of putting a sign up on my door 
my my glass window with with hopefully uh, some donations coming my way with more beer but uh, I'm probably a little less adorable than 93 year old grandma so uh, that was the best thing that I saw this week is it bad if I get really specific about it like need more Maui Brewing Company like is that bad if I like put that sign up like I want a specific brand uh, yeah. you hear me out can there get- Maui Bruco Need more bikini blondes. That might get <laughs> misconstrued. Right. We probably uh, should pick a different one. Yeah, I'm, I'm Paul Hunter Pilsner. That's sort of the, the direction. That's safer. That's yeah, safer. I like that a lot. Um, all right, my best is ESPN aired game one of the 1988 World Series between the Dodgers and A's the other night. Um, and that's the classic game, right? The Kirk Gibson limp off home run off of Dennis Eckersley to win it uh, when they were down to their last out. It, reminded, it brought back so many memories. First off, you had Vin Scully and Joe Gargiola on the call, and they were just so great. Like, that era, my gosh, they were also on the call for the 1986 World Series when the Mets beat the Red Sox, and um, it just doesn't get better than that from a broadcasting standpoint. And then it just reminded me, the A's were so bleep and loaded back then. Do you realize this? Their <laughs> two, three, four, five hitter were Dave Henderson, Jose Conseco, Dave Parker, and Mark McGuire. Like, come on, man. The A's were so good. Uh, And more, obviously, kudos then given to the Dodgers, the fact that they uh, were able to dishearten them enough via that Kirk Gibson home run uh, that they pretty much couldn't recover, and the Dodgers went on to win the World Series. But reliving some of the great sports moments, uh, it's been at least something to watch and uh, take those strolls down memory lane. All right, don't forget, hit us up uh, on Twitter, at Kanoa Leahy or at Jordan Helly. Jordan, a lot of fun. We'll do it again here soon. Can't wait.